Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It is my huge pleasure to welcome Annalisa Jenkins to the podcast. Annalisa, hi, how are you? Uh, great, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. So I should declare right up front that you are on the board of Genomics England, um, but I don't think that's a particular conflict. Um, and you also do lots and lots of other things. Across life sciences, you've you've both run R&D departments in large pharma companies. You've worked with lots of um, small organizations, but you actually didn't start life in the life sciences at all. And I wonder if you could give us a little bit about your background, which I think is fascinating. Sure. Oh, well, as I say, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, indeed, I started life at Bart's Hospital, uh, where I trained in medicine. And during that period of time, which is rather a long time ago, I uh, decided that uh, to fund my way through medical school, I would take a trip down to the Naval Recruiting Office and I signed up as a medical officer, which was in the um, early to mid 80s. And uh, so I started life as a very baby medical officer in the British Navy and served for in total nine years. And during that time, had the luxury of and privilege of traveling all around the world, uh, posted in far flung places, Hong Kong, Gibraltar, and also served at sea in Gulf War. And uh, served with the Marines, uh, fleet air arm, did underwater medicine. So it was an amazing experience. And then, uh, after about nine years, I decided to actually return to the National Health Service and I trained in cardiovascular medicine. And that led me actually in the late 90s to think about really what I wanted to do in my life, uh, finally. And I made the switch into the pharmaceutical industry with Bristol Myers Squibb in London as a baby junior cardiovascular medical advisor. And wow. I was in big pharma. Yeah, I was in big pharma for a number of years, you know, and uh, it was uh, quite a ride. It has been quite a ride, actually. I, I worked in Big Pharma for oh many years, actually. Bristol Myers Group for 14 years and then was uh, running global R&D at a company based in Europe called Merck Serono. And uh, during that time, I again, lived and worked globally, predominantly in research and development, but also medical affairs and regulating across all therapeutic areas. And um, it was in actually 2013 that I decided that having really enjoyed, and we can explore that actually, you know, life in drug development, therapeutics development in large pharma, I decided to go back into biotech or over into biotech for the first time. Uh, I often tell the story that I was uh, one day sitting in an office, beautiful office in uh, Germany with thousands of employees on a global basis. And again, the absolute privilege of deploying over a billion dollars of capital every year in, in an R&D portfolio to sitting in a small lab in Central Square with uh, five employees and about five million in the bank as we had started <laughs> a, a small gene therapy company in Boston. It was quite a transition, as you could imagine. 
<laughs> for sure. And now you've touched on a couple of things in passing there that I just want to double click on. Yeah, One was sure. you, you used the words underwater medicine, which are just incredibly evocative. And I can't let that go without asking the question, what happens in underwater medicine <laughs> apart from getting someone <laughs> to the surface? <laughs> yeah, so that is the uh, the medicine of essentially diving, uh, diving underwater medicine. And so, yeah, it's all about how do you safely take a human down to great depths and bring them back to the surface again uh, in one piece. <laughs> and uh, generally includes uh, the use of uh, barometric chambers, as you can imagine. And the reason that I was trained in that, of course, was because I was deployed with the Minesweeper Squadron. These are quite remarkable individuals, as you can imagine, divers that, uh, that dive down. In those days, of course, it was a lot of it was, was physical. So divers mm. diving down and physically defusing mines at the bottom of the ocean, which of course was heavily deployed during Gulf War One, when we were sent far north up into the, um, off the coast of Iraq to defuse the, the mines wow. that had been laid there. Um, and so I was in charge of all things medical as it related to the deployment of that, that force. So what, what, a, what an experience as a, as a young physician. I was in my mid-twenties when I was deployed wow. there. There was one other notable point about that deployment. When I signed up with the Navy, they said, you'll never go to sea, as a woman, one of the first females to join the, uh, the forces as a, as a medic, the Royal Navy. And uh, if you have children, you'll, you'll have to leave. That, that was the policy in those days. Wow. Well, um, in 1990, I got the call to join HMS Herald to deploy to the Gulf um, as the ship's, uh, as the squadron um, medical officer. So I spent quite a lot of time at sea with 700 men as the only woman, which was quite an experience. <laughs> great, great training for my future career as a cardiologist and a senior executive in the pharmaceutical industry. But uh, I would say I also had two children along the way. They changed the rules <laughs> during my tenure. <laughs> glad, to, glad to hear it. Well, I think that's something that whenever any of us feel like we're having a stressful day at work, I guess at least we're not trying to defuse a mine at the bottom, yeah. of, <laughs> the bottom of the sea. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. The, the temptation is to dive into more details of that. But let's, um, let's fast forward a bit from there and think about life deploying capital, as you put it, to actually try and turn science into you know a treatment yeah. a therapeutic a drug that can actually go into a patient and make a difference in the world maybe just if we start with the kind of 101 for listeners who are not that familiar with the process what are all the pieces of that jigsaw puzzle because they're pretty rich and varied right yeah so i mean i think the first thing to say it's a very well hmm. traditionally it's a very long complex process that requires really hundreds if not at times thousands of individuals to come together over a period of time to um, essentially turn uh, basic bench discoveries into new therapeutics. And, and, and I'm gonna say therapeutics when I, I mean, I predominantly early on in my career worked in therapeutics, but obviously similar issues or similar challenges apply to whether you're making, you know, developing medical devices, uh, diagnostics, et cetera, they all have their own you know, they all have their own sort of interesting um, characteristics, but let's talk about therapeutics. I mean, it all starts, and I have to tell you, when I was in drug development and, and leading the, the R&D organization, I'm not a bench scientist. Um, actually, I'm, I'm more of a practicing clinician. So, so I often operated on 
principles. And the first principle was that you have to have a basic understanding of biology and understanding, uh, you know, what constitutes health and healthy biology and how does that progress into and, 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 and correlate with ill health and disease. And so number one is the discoveries that, that often come out of academic labs you know, increasingly actually from academia now, and but still obviously within within the industry uh, as it relates to the biology and the underpinnings of disease. And once you start to understand that, of course, generally that's associated with the discovery of anomalies of, uh, of pathways that one can start to think about uh, impacting and influencing. And I don't have time to go into all the ways <laughs> that one can, can think about that, but the basic principle is that something's wrong and you're gonna try and fix it. So first of all, you have to understand what is yep. wrong, and then you have to think about well, what are the tools at your disposal that you might be able to use to fix it. Now, in tradition in the old days, that was really small molecule chemistry, the application of chemistry and pills and potions to impact pathways that are deranged and to bring them back to normality. And, you know, when we think about that the typical small molecule drug development um, around, you know, right from the early days, aspirin, paracetamol, early antimicrobials, um, and then, you know, into the worlds of hypertension and cholesterol-lowering drugs and antidepressants. I mean, these are all examples of small molecule chemistry. And of course, these days, though, we have an enormous armamentarium of choices that we might wish to apply because we then moved into the biologics, the world of biologics, of antibodies, of drugs that impact intracellular pathways rather than extracellular pathways and enzymatic pathways. And then, of course, moving on to really novel therapies now, which include cells, cell therapy, gene therapies, where we can modify the genetic makeup of a cell, both outside the body and in the body. So many different ways of, of impacting the biology. And then, of course, then there's a process to go through. And that process really is one of preclinical, where we can really use uh, models, um, traditionally animals, rodents, large animals, increasingly now the use of digital technologies where we can start to ask similar questions at single cell level and even on computers and model out what this might look like once one moves into the clinic, largely trying to rule out toxicity and also that getting the dose right, the dose formulation and the schedule of, of how you dose a drug. Then you move into the human, of course, and that's always very nerve wracking, first human dose. And then really, actually, the process becomes one of gathering incremental data in certain populations just to tease out the benefits of a drug. Does it work? Along with the risks and the safety profile and trying to work out whether the overall utility of a drug in the human for that particular disease is, is positive. The benefits outweigh the risks. Importantly, along the way, though, and increasingly with these increasingly complex technologies, another huge part of this is how can you make it, the manufacturing yep. aspects, which you have to start very early on and uh, preclinically, because ultimately the importance of being able to make your product at scale with the appropriate quality and predictability is exceedingly important. It's extremely complicated. Um, and so all of that, the data in humans, and you've probably heard about phase one, two, three increasingly, um, that tends to be less and less the way that these therapeutics are de delivered now, are developed. Uh, but you're basically gathering more and more data, and more and more information on the manufacturing side. And then that all finally comes together 
um, in filings to the various regulatory authorities on a global basis. Interestingly, it's not just about now, does it work? It, uh, you know, benefit in, outweigh risk. Increasingly now there's notionally what they call the third and fourth hurdle, which is, is it of medical value? Is it value for money? And are patients going to be able to access your therapy? And is it going to be used safely and appropriately in healthcare systems globally? And so that's also a very, very important part of bringing forward a new therapeutic into healthcare systems globally. So, yeah, so, but that's uh, a tour de force of, uh, of the, the whole <laughs> process. So I guess the, fu the fundamental biology, the, the system that you're trying to impact or kind of perturb, um, and then as you say, the pulling together all of these different elements about what's the thing we want to make? Is it toxic? What's it, what's it going to change? How's it going to, how's it going to benefit people? And is it economic? And if we go to, it does, I think it seems still to many people kind of like magic, right? Even if we, even if we limit yeah. ourselves to kind of small molecule um, yeah. drugs, we find a small molecule that's going to impact something in the body. We put it in a pill, someone swallows it. And you know, this small molecule then gets into your bloodstream through your stomach or whatever. Yeah. What are we looking for that small molecule to do? You know, okay. is it going to bind to a protein, or there'll be a range? But I guess just like bring that to life a bit. How does how does the magic work if this small kind of collection of atoms gets into our body and suddenly just does something? <laughs> well, it goes back to biology, doesn't it? Really, I mean, I think generally the small molecules are generally <laughs> are um, impacting enzymatic pathways. So as you know, enzymes, enzymatic pathways are, are, lie at the epicenter of how we, uh, let me take an example, you know, um, the, take, take um, the statins, you know, cholesterol lowering drugs, that's a good example. So, you know, cholesterol in our bodies, you know, certain patients have high cholesterol and we know the biology of how um, cholesterol, the fats in our body move basically um, through metabolism, metabolic pathways with enzymes. Um, that largely involves the liver, generally the dominant organ. So when we're developing drugs to impact um, that, those pathways to reduce harmful parts of the fats in our body and to increase the good ones, because there are ones that we need to increase, um, the target organ generally is the liver. And then it's really about essentially finding um, small molecules that we can give them orally, they actually, and increasingly in cholesterol reduction, now we have other um, antibodies and other agents that can be given through injection uh, subcutaneously. And the travel to the liver impact the uh, enzyme and essentially uh, lower one side of the uh, the pathway and increase the other. So, so you know, um, and what we can do is we can upregulate, we can downregulate, and all of that is known as a pharmacology. And so that pharmacology of what that small molecule might do when it enters the body, travels to the liver, and uh, we can replicate in preclinical models. So we can predict the dose and how we need to give it, and um, how often we need to give it to maintain a steady state over time. Um, and we can replicate that in, in preclinically. And then as we go into the human, then what we're really looking for, that's a very good example, actually, we give in phase one, very small doses, and we so incrementally increase those doses. And in the first experiments, we give a one-off dose, and then we sequentially start to dose over two weeks, four weeks, and then get up to generally six to 12 months. And all through that, we're monitoring 
for um, biomarkers, so measurements. In this case, we'd be measuring levels of cholesterol, all the way through to see whether what we thought was happening preclinically has been translated into the human, so that the pharmacology in the human is, is predictable. And so ultimately, um, what we're looking to do is to prove that what we thought was going to happen from our preclinical models happens in the humans and it's safe. And yep. uh, I use the word translation there. So the secret, because I thought you were going to ask me what's the secret of success for all of this and why do some well, companies... Yeah, I was thinking it's, it's partly like what's the secret of success, but also it'd be great to bring to life for us, like if you're running R&D for a large pharma company, like what kind of decisions yeah. do you have to make and what does a good decision look like or a bad decision? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as I said earlier, this is a very complicated process to discover uh, develop, make, market, and sell a, a novel therapeutic diagnostic uh, medical device. So a couple of things. First of all, you really need brilliant people from across a different spectrum of um, capabilities and skill sets, from basic bench scientists through those that are absolute experts in toxicology, pharmacology, biology. Um, I mentioned all the aspects of chemistry and how you know, you come to bring a small molecule into a pill uh, that you can make in, in the millions on a global basis that is stable over time, that can be bottled or popped into a different uh, packaging. I mean, all of this requires many, many different people to come together. Uh, you also need, of course, those that are experts in the design and delivery of clinical trials on a global basis. It's a very, very expensive, complicated, um, um, uh, process, as well as regulators, those that are expert in how to collaborate with and interchange with the regulators on a global basis. So, that, so the number one is you need great teams, great people, um, and, and and great leaders that know how to build highly effective teams um, that can come together uh, with a common purpose and vision and and really drive these programs forward to success. The second thing that you need is obviously a large amount of capital and you need to be able to deploy that capital in a thoughtful way that recognises that at any point along the way uh, there are failures. And in fact, I think many of your listeners will know, because it's often quoted in the newspapers, that for every 10 molecules that enter the clinic, probably only one might make its way towards mid to late stage development. Um, and and yep. are few obviously successfully into uh, uh, the healthcare systems globally. And so it's a very risky business where, where you have to get very comfortable with failure because more things will fail than will succeed. And then, you know, as I say, the third thing you really need is um, you need great, great leaders. And let me come on to the second part of your question is, you know, if you're running R&D with an enormous portfolio of programmes, I mean, hundreds of these programs in large pharma. Of course, biotech is different because they often only have one program or a few programs, and it's slightly different. But certainly, have a big program with billions of, of dollars being applied. Of course, it's all about how you how you build your teams, how you think about go no go decisions at any point along the way, because there are gates, stage gates. You know, did you meet the criteria that you set out to meet? with your data sets that you've delivered? And do you still have confidence that you can go to the next step and the next step? And those are all important decisions which can't be undertaken lightly given the amount of human and financial capital that gets applied to this process along the way. 
and of course you know you don't you know you're not going to get everything right but the idea is to try and use lots and lots of predictive markers biomarkers and increasingly new digital technologies actually to be able to fail fast and early it's easy to say it's actually quite difficult yeah. to do over the years I've learned that programs have a natural affinity to progress because <laughs> everyone wants their baby to move forward. And the toughest decision as a senior leader in R&D is to actually take the decision to close a program down. But it is important to fail early where things aren't going to work and not to pursue what I used to call a strategy of hope. I think the mm. second thing to do is always to follow the science. I always felt that actually that if I could follow the science and stick true to the two, two points, which was, is there a significant unmet need out there and a patient population that's truly waiting for something that's better to extend and enhance their lives, number one? Do I think that this medicine and the science uh, that is accruing has an opportunity to address that medical need? And then at the end of the day, I worried about the business case a bit later because I always felt that good science ultimately into patients and their families with significant unmet need um, would prevail commercially. It must be it must be difficult in the position of running a big R&D portfolio for a big pharma company, billions of dollars of capital flowing around to kind of keep the patients kind of in your mind. Um, there must be so many kind of spreadsheets and so on. How do you do that? I guess both at a personal level and at an institutional level, how do you actually assess patient needs or engage with patients or whatever? Well, that's a really excellent question. and. Of course, it's, the, it's actually the, the critical question, actually. It doesn't really matter if your portfolio is hundreds and hundreds of, of programs or whether you're sitting in a biotechnology company, small company, you know, with one or two programs. I would just say patient absolutely firmly at the centre that every day we get out of bed um, with the patient and their caregivers and families uh, front of mind. I've done a lot of work in rare diseases actually and and, and in the paediatric populations and we know actually that really you can't be successful in drug development and novel therapeutic development um, without engaging uh, the patient communities uh, as really a, as, as a partner and as a collaborator on the journey. So for me it was always about purpose and mission, being purpose-driven, purpose-led it was always about putting patients at the centre. But in reality and practically, it was also about, you know, engaging in patient-centric drug development. We hear a lot about that. And what does that mean? It means actually, rather than always um, finding a learned intermediary, otherwise known as a healthcare professional, to tell us what we think patients really value in their lives and what health looks like to them and you know, what distresses them and upsets them about their particular condition, go and ask patients and uh, go and engage them um, and bring them to the table. And not only as you think through, you know, preclinically the discoveries that you want to pursue, you know, um, whether it be in the rare disease space or in cancer or in some of these really profound autoimmune diseases, I mean, across the board, but all the way through the process. And I'll tell you a story, actually. I worked, uh, I, I mentioned that I became a CEO of a gene therapy company where we were working on rare diseases largely in young people um, monogenic so single gene deletion and um, we worked in a disease called glycogen storage disorder type 1a and these were young young children um, who really couldn't metabolize glucose to maintain their glucose levels they had profound levels of low glucose hyperglycemia 
and often would die in the night. Um, and, they, and they had to be woken up every few hours to be provided with a, a sort of starchy solution. And when you ask the families, you know, really, what, what would be the ideal medicine or what would be the ideal outcome for them? They said, look, we just want to sleep a full night's sleep and we want to go to sleep without the fear yeah. of not waking up in the morning. And we had to go and think about that because the regulators, of course, have, you know, assays and biomarkers and measures of disease that aren't always correlated with really what matters to patients. And so uh, in the early days of that program, we went yeah. to the agency and said, look, you know, we're going to develop this uh, gene therapy. But we believe that the marker that we want to look at is the ability to lengthen the time um, to five to seven hours between the need for glucose. And would you accept that as a as, a, as an endpoint? And I use that as and, and that was accepted. And we subsequently sold that company to a company called Ultragenics. And these to say that that oh, that's great now moving into phase three and the data looks fantastic to me and I'm just so hopeful for that program but that's just an example of how as you're moving through drug development you know you also have to be thinking about novel ways of, of defining your patient populations of measuring disease of uh, the outcomes that you want to deliver so it's a very complicated iterative process over many years now I will tell you that, of course, during COVID, because we have to talk about that, you know, that the process of drug development, particularly vaccine development and therapeutics development was really markedly impacted by COVID. And everyone will know that the process uh, length was significantly shortened. And we were able to show that with amazing collaboration between the public yeah. private sector, we were able to accelerate those timelines remarkably. I, I'm not sure that that will be the case as we move forward, we get back to our old ways, but I'm hoping that a lot of the lessons that were learned about, you know, how to have a sense of urgency, put the patients at centre and really accelerate the ability to deliver cures and important um, interventions. I'm just hoping that some of those lessons will prevail and persist moving forward. Um, because I think we were able to do some remarkable things uh, during COVID to bring forward novel therapeutics and vaccines, as we know, to address the pandemic. Absolutely. And I, I, I love those stories because I think it's such a great example of how the reality of life on the ground can be so instructive in almost any field, right? In a previous life many years ago I used to work a lot with retailers and you know if you were not spending time actually on the shop floor understanding how people were moving around the store forget about it you're living in a dream world and likewise in technology development as soon as people say oh no no we understand the needs of the users don't worry you don't need to speak to them something's going to rapidly go wrong I love the example of sleeping through the night as such a human thing yeah. that yeah. then actually translating that into a, an endpoint persuading the regulator that that makes sense is, um, is so powerful I'd love to bring you back to that that moment you described earlier of sitting with uh, a team of sort of three or four people around you um, in Central Square in Boston, trying to yeah. create a new therapeutic, having come from this this world of having a portfolio of um, thousands. What does it take to go from a good idea, which I'm assuming you had at that moment as you were sitting in Central Square, to actually build a company around that and to actually you know make that real? Get, turn that idea into a product, turn that product into a therapeutic, get that you know, yeah. into, into patients and make a difference in the world. It's, it seems almost such an incredibly challenging journey. <laughs> how, how do you yes. break it down and actually go, go yeah. on it? 
Well, you know, the short answer to that is great people and great capital. <laughs> it's the coming together of amazing people with great ideas and high quality uh, capital, so human capital and financial capital. But, you know, um, slightly more <laughs> nuanced answer to that question uh, is that, uh, well, let me start by saying, of course, um, I would say that, you know, amazing ideas, ideation, um, inventions um, across academic labs on a global basis. Um, no shortage of remarkable people inventing uh, things on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a huge optimist and I feel that just about every problem in the world as it relates to healthcare ultimately can be addressed and solved given, given that enormous uh, potential. So the question you ask is quite right. How do you turn those inventions into innovation, innovation being all about, you know, value creation? And it is all about being able to bring that out of the labs, uh, put it into the hands of people that really truly understand the pathway and the process that you need to travel on. And then, you know, let me give you the example of Dimension Therapeutics, which is a company where I was the founding CEO. That, that All of that work had come out of the lab of a remarkable professor, Jim Wilson at UPenn, who'd spent 30 years working on uh, the concept of using a adeno-associated virus, sort of a virus particle, to biologically do what viruses do when they infect the human body, which is travel to certain organs and leverage that organ to deploy their genetic material. So instead of deploying a virus genetic material, we just popped a human gene into those viruses and used that mechanism. Well, that was the life's work of Jim and many collaborators. And so Dimension was founded upon that insight and those programs. And when I arrived, there were a couple of programs looking at whether we could do that in a disease called haemophilia. And we, and we built a whole portfolio and got access to really good quality capital and you know these days as i said it's really important to access good quality capital and that can come from very many sources and then you gradually you know uh, the, the dimension journey was quite typical we had seven programs along a number of rare genetic disorders uh, we built a fabulous team in uh, over time in boston and raised just over i think just under 200 million over three or four years took the company public on the nasdaq and then decided that the company would be best placed in the hands of a larger organization. Interestingly, because we had some wobbles in the lead program uh, as it related to some of the science that from the preclinical had not tr uh, hadn't predicted some of the challenges in the human. And so we ran into a few wobbles which were going to require more money and more time. And that's often what happens in biotech and you have yep. to take a different direction. And so, yeah, place those programs in. And now, actually, a number of those are advancing into late stage drug development. And the promise of gene therapy and haemophilia is really coming through in another company called Biomarin. You know, you just, it's so unpredictable. And when you're a senior leader in the biotech world, and actually even in large pharma, uh, there are certain characteristics you require. You have to be able to, uh, have to be able to tolerate risk. You have to be able to, deal with ambiguity. You have to be able to accept that things fail, actually, um, and feel that you're really on a journey of lifelong learning. And yeah. so even the failures can teach you so much. You have to have a long-term view because this is a long process. 
it's really important to understand the power of hiring brilliant people around you and feeling like you're the dumbest person in the room and getting comfortable with that because it requires just remarkable um, expertise and particularly now when the, the process of drug development has moved on into these very very advanced um, therapeutics and modalities number one and where digital um, it, it just is a cross-cutting theme and there's a as a bit of a technical dinosaur, <laughs> technology dinosaur. Again, you know, these things really do blow my mind. And I always feel that now as a leader in drug development, it's gonna be really important to know what questions to ask and to be continually mm. asking questions and knowing and hoping that there'll be tremendously bright, sophisticated people around the table and know the answers. Um, and always being able to keep a, a sort of a high level long term view, because that's really the importance of a leader. So these are all the sort of qualities that you need now, I think, to build companies. And I think also, as you mentioned earlier, to always be able to keep your eye on the end goal, which is not about money. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to return to shareholders and you have to um, have a good relationship, of course, with your shareholders, because they often own the company, whether that be on the private or public markets. But ultimately, you know, keep right front and center um, what you're really trying to do, <laughs> which is, you know, to improve um, human health and to advance the ability of healthcare systems to offer more options and choices for patients. So I think, you know, that's for me when I look at around my industry, what great leaders today do, those are really the qualities that I see in the leaders that differentiate themselves, whether that be the CEOs of great companies or the heads of R&D, you know, that's what really what you're looking to spot. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word. Mm-hmm.